Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, you're listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford. And this week, we're talking about generative AI. What do we know so far and what's going to happen next? And joining me in the studio, I have Dominic Young, who's the CEO of AXA, a payments technology company. But you're joining us with your sort of newsroom technology hat on, but also with a former hat that you wore many years ago when the internet was a young thing in shorts. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I used to be director of IP at News International, now known as News UK, and spent a lot of time thinking about, talking about, lobbying about copyright and the internet. And it's very interesting that the debates about generative AI have brought up a lot of the same questions that we were tackling then. What we have now is 25 years of real world experience of what happened after those decisions got made. And so increasingly, this is a subject people are asking me to talk about. And I really like talking about because I think it's a moment when the media can influence its own future and it can do it in a very conscious way. Yeah, just to scroll the clock back a bit, I don't quite remember what was going on then uh, so much. I mean, like the late 90s, dawn of the internet, I was really very much starting my career as a journalist. But I know that basically the tech companies got a bit of a carte blanche, really, didn't they? To do as they wish, they got various legislative get-outs, which insulated them from any sort of prosecution or liability for their content. And then there were also perhaps some strategic decisions that were made, which we might regret now, whereby news publishers gave everything away for free, didn't they? Because they were making so much money at that time, they didn't really see the the challenge until perhaps it was too late. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the two things are necessarily linked. And obviously, the second one of those two issues is the thing I'm hoping to tackle now with my with my day job with with Axate and try to bring consumer revenue back into the heart of the, the model for, for media companies more broadly. But as the internet was unfolding, the tech companies had a pretty good argument, actually. So think back to the days, if you can, when the big dominant tech companies of the time were really ISPs. They were people who were providing dial-up access to the internet, people like FreeServe and Demon and others. And one of the things they did, this is, this is my memory of how it played out, as very much as a practitioner, not as a lobbyist. They were pointing out that for a lot of reasons, a lot of what they did was technically breaching copyright because copyright was written for an era of you know photocopying and printing presses and things like that. So every time someone loaded a web page, technically they were making copies in servers all over the place. But more than that, those companies were also saying to their users as part of their deal for your um, internet access, we'll give you a little bit of space and you can create your own web page. Technically, because that web page is sitting on their servers, they might be liable if there's a breach of the law, if someone infringes copyright or if there's libel or something like that. 
And obviously, how could they possibly be accountable for that stuff? Because it wasn't them who put it there. Their, their server was, in theory, getting caught in the technicalities of copyright law when really it wasn't their fault. So it was all built on a pretty sensible observation. And I think what legislators wanted to do was not stand in the way of the development of what was absolutely clearly a profound opportunity for, for society, for individual economies and everybody else. And that's how exceptions got made to large chunks of the law in large parts of the world. That meant that the ISPs, who now have sort of morphed into these big platforms in terms of the central stakeholders, were not liable for these things that users did. And that had some unforeseen consequences. I mean, we could do a whole thing on that, but here we are now. Back then, news brands were the biggest single advertising segment of the advertising economy. Today, we're a very small part of that, very small part of that pie, maybe a billion pounds a year or something in revenue for all the all the news brands combined versus something like 14 billion, I think, in the UK alone, just for um, Facebook and Google. Something like that. They can correct me, but they, if they want to, but they don't. They don't tend to talk about it. <laughs> but here we are, and along come generative AI, which is a word I didn't even know a few months ago. Now it's sort of you know second nature to me. Um, six months on from Chat GPT starting, um, we know a lot more about it than we did before. And I think what, what you're going to talk about mainly is about copyright and lobbying piece. Is that right? Well, I it's it's, re, it's reopened some interesting questions. So the the upshot of what happened, you know, 20, 25 years ago, partly linked to what, what you said, which was news brands wanted to be highly prominent in things like Google and so on. So they weren't complaining about being included in their search. In fact, they devoted a huge amount of their resources into making sure they were included in their search. Consequence of that is that what Google and others have been doing over the years is crawling or scraping the internet. They go away, they look at everything on all these web pages. And in the case of Google, they use it to create search results. How do they know what's on your web page without looking at it? But that process of capturing the contents of web pages and putting them in large databases has become pretty widespread. And it's not always clear what that, those databases are being used for, or if a database created for one purpose, like searches, but also being used for something else we, we don't know about. Which is interesting when generative AI emerges, because generative AI is a technology that only works if it can learn from, they call it training, huge quantities of content that other people have created. It knows a lot of stuff, but only because other people created that stuff and put it online, whether that's photographs or music or, or text. And clearly, I mean, openly what's been happening is the internet has been crawled and the content that is found there is being used as this resource to, to train AIs, which opens up a whole bunch of questions, some of them of concern economically to the news industry. Will this replace us? Will it be a cheaper option? Should we be getting paid for that? Um, ethically, because generative AI, by its own omission, does a thing that OpenAI, one of the leading companies, the one who does ChatGPT, calls hallucinating. It makes up facts. It infers things that aren't true and presents them as fact, which is a little bit worrying. But also, does it throw up opportunities? Can we use this to improve journalism, to make newsrooms more efficient? On the scary side of that, and something people are very worried about, will it replace jobs and will computers be displacing journalists and, and actually making it harder for them? And just to backtrack a little bit, so generative AI is what we're talking about. Now, as I understand it, it's, I mean, I don't understand how it works, obviously, probably not many people do, but as I understand it, it's a prediction engine. It's like predictive text, yeah. but predicting actual words trained on things it's read from the past. 
by definition, it sounds like a bit of a mad way to write a news story. You wouldn't you wouldn't ask a computer to predict what that news story is, but I'm sure some people are doing that. Is that is that right? Is that a, a fair summary of it? Is it? Well, I mean, I'm not an expert in how it works by by any means, and I think news actually is an interesting sector to consider when you're talking about generative AI, because news is about what's happening right now, and no AI can show up, interview people, be in the streets witnessing events or or press conferences. It it depends on humans doing something immediately before the AI. But actually, I don't think the AI businesses are particularly focused on news right now. Change that question and say, is this a good way of writing marketing copy for a brochure? It's not quite in the same sort of clear ethical hmm. space. And it, and it does raise some interesting questions and, and dilemmas. Uh, but yeah, essentially what it's doing is it's looking at everything it's ever seen and it's, and it's taught itself to synthesize very, very plausible, credible output, whether it can be text, it can be pictures, it can be music. Uh, based on what it's seen, but not not directly just copying what it's seen. It, it's learning. I mean, so we, we've done quite a lot of, on this, as you can imagine, and there's a lot, publishers are doing quite a lot in this in this area. Uh, there's quite a lot of... of, of exo- uh, but there's not very much um, using it to actually publish content to, 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 the, to the punters, as it were, not without, at least not without a good degree of oversight. I think BuzzFeed did a bunch of travel guides, but they seem to have paused that or maybe that was just a one-off um but they did a bunch of travel guides as told to buzzy hmm. uh which were kind of a bit formulaic a bit meh in terms of content and for whatever reason they've not spread that maybe they've got their own issues anyway at buzzfeed which, <laughs> which they kind of got other things to focus on so there's that i've seen tom's hardware at future i've got a chatbot which is using chat gpt under license, I think, to sort of answer questions from readers based on the articles on the site. So it's like a reviews website. Yeah. So that's quite interesting. But it's kind of a bit so-so because you have to ask exactly the right question because it's quite a narrow set of data. At the end of the day, it's not really that di- different from just doing a search on their site to, to answer questions. And then other, I think quite a lot of people are using it to sort of write summaries and things like that mm. of articles. But um, you, you were at the... Um, uh, in my World Congress in New York, weren't you? So yeah. it was to- I know it was talked about a lot there. Yeah. And uh, I think someone from Shibstead was saying that um, they use it to write summaries in the CMS, but they did say that rather worryingly, 10% of them were hallucinations. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, it's so, a problem. So there, there, are a lot of sh- there are a lot of shortcomings there, but as, as you say, maybe the biggest impact of all this on us could be the idea of search engines using generative AI to answer questions without any recourse back to the source material. Is that fair? So this this, this idea that search suddenly cuts out, not the middleman, it just becomes the middleman and, yeah. and, it, and it cuts out the person who's actually assembled the facts in the first place and done the hard work. I mean, we're, we're at an early stage and there's lots of fears being raised. That's definitely one. Why do you need to go back and read something if what's presented to you is essentially performing the same function, but it raises a bunch of questions. One is, isn't that kind of the point of copyright? That if you created something, it's up to you to decide who gets to use it, how, and for what purpose. And and if that's been completely subverted and everyone, every AI business can help itself to any content it finds online, that is the asserted position, I believe, of open AI. They say, if it's on the open web, it's fair game. Shouldn't we have a say in that? And is that okay? Worse, if 
hallucinations mean that it might be presenting completely false information as fact. And that's a huge danger when it comes to the news. You know, if it's made up a risotto recipe, turns out a bit salty because it hallucinated the, the salt part of the recipe. That's not the end of the world. But, you know, news has consequences. And, and I think that raises some big issues for the news industry on the flip side. One is how can we use it? And we're seeing early experiments with that. But I think they're all characterized by the same thing, which is in the news industry, everyone who's using it says, but there's a human who's answerable for this. Mm -hmm. The AI doesn't get to, to do things on its own, and we have to stand behind it because we're fully accountable for what we publish. Very, in very different. The, that's probably in the respectable end of the news industry. I bet I bet there are a lot of sketchy websites that, or sketchy publishers who are just, you know, filling their boots at the moment with cheap copy and not, not worrying about it. That might be true, and yeah. there's, there's already been research published that's discovered, you know, 50 or something bot farms that are churning out, you know, fake news stories for... Uh, to generate traffic and to generate programmatic revenue. So sure, there's, there's the, uh, the wrong end of, of the industry. I don't think you'd call that the news industry, really. That's just that's just scams. Bad things can happen, absolutely. Uh, but all the, all the examples you mentioned, respectable news companies are, are standing behind their output, partly because they're accountable to their audience and their reputation, also because they're accountable in the law. They don't have special exceptions that were written 25 years ago saying, when you do something wrong, will ignore it, which is what these, these these early exceptions have amounted to for the platforms in which they depend on. So the news is a sort of edge case for thinking about the ethical and the legal backdrop for generative AI. And it does ask us all, including legislators, to look again at the, the legal framework and ask whether or not this is the right framework and whether it's leading to the right outcomes. I suppose it's worth noting at this point that ChatGPT is only... Um using training data up to 2021 isn't it so it's not it's not a sort of too much of a direct threat to news publishers right now but i'm that's... very sure chat gpt is not focused on news at all actually i but but that doesn't change the fact that it can be used however people want to use it and it doesn't change the fact that the technology is not an exclusive to one company and people can set up their own ai engines and feed it whatever training data they want to use it however they like. So it's quite hard to really contain this this issue. What do you think um, publishers should do about it? I mean, we've reported that News Corp, um, Axel Springer and um, IAC in the US are all, have all got together and they're talking about potentially rewriting copyright law and asserting their copyright and, look, and looking at licensing and taking a very sort of bullish approach to this. I get the impression that there's a fair degree of concern about this, but what do you think? Do you think there's enough urgency around this? And what do you think publishers should be doing? Certainly, we should be challenging the assumption that this is all just fine. I suspect it's inevitable that there will be litigation in the States in particular, partly because that's where the AI companies are currently uh, concentrated, but also because uh, American law has this to my mind, very inconvenient and annoying aspect when it comes to copyright, which is this principle called fair use, which defines quite vaguely certain things that can be done without a license with copyright material. The equivalent in Britain and Europe and most other places is quite a prescriptive list of things that are okay. It's okay to copy a book to preserve it for the future if you're a library. It's okay to use small quotes if you're doing criticism and review or if you're reporting current events. So you can see clips from football matches on on other news channels, all quite clear. In America, it's quite vague, which means it almost always gets settled in court. 
there was a huge case. I can't remember when, maybe 10 years ago, the publishing industry versus Google book publishing, because Google wants to scan in all the books. And essentially that was the, the publishers after a very long time did not win that case. Question is, if the same question comes up when it comes to scraping for generative AI, will the courts find that to be a fair use or not? I don't think there's a settled view on that, and I'm not sure we'll ever settle it until until a court does. And so I think it's inevitable that there will be some legal action. At the same time, people are pressing legislators to make new laws around this in all parts of the world, and they're looking at it. The, the British <clears throat> IPO are doing consultations. The Europeans are proposing various rules. The, the Americans have been holding hearings about it. It's a very, very active area. And I think everyone involved in it needs to think about whether we know yet exactly how we want this framework to to operate. It's quite early to write laws, in my view. The laws we wrote in the early noughties turned out to have a different impact from that that was anticipated. Um, and it, they were done in anticipation of a problem. I, I personally think it's okay to to take a bit of time here. I also think there's things the industry can do of its own volition, which don't necessarily have to involve legislators and courts, and we should be thinking about that as well. So what would those be then? Go on. Well, this is, I mean, there is a question around licensing. I think people should be quite cautious about that. But where an AI company is willing to say, all right, we, we do need permission and we would like to agree it with you, that's helpful and it, it, it sets a precedent. Um, whether we, that can extend to all content they touch or whether they just want to pick and choose certain big content providers it seems to be the latter at the moment who knows but that's worth thinking about i think another thing that the industry ought to think about is the fact that i think it's inevitable that the existence of this technology will increase what you might call the kind of pollution level online there's already an awful lot of garbage online and it's already an often talked about problem that people can't be sure whether to trust things they they see online and the, the era of mis- and disinformation has been blamed for all sorts of quite wide-ranging ills. Is it possible for us to distinguish what you might call legitimate, trustworthy content and make it clearer to people when they're, when they're accessing it and find a good way of signalling that to people? And to come back to a point we made earlier, I think at least at the very baseline, one way of distinguishing legitimate content from what you might call illegitimate content is Content produced by legitimate companies with a name and address and an editor and an email address and so on, and under the law that applies generally to publishers without special exceptions for their status, is in a different category from content produced automatically or published by platforms where there is no human checking, there's no human who's, who's accountable for it. So perhaps we, without getting into subjective measures of quality, which is always complex and there's always a spectrum, Perhaps we can start to say, well, there's at least one thing that distinguishes legitimate, trustworthy content from stuff that, that you ought to treat with caution. Maybe we can explore that and maybe the industry can create uh, some ideas around that. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. 
listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. I guess maybe publishers, if they're going to, you know, compete and, and almost be an industry that's worth saving, they've got to make sure their standards are kind of whiter than white or as best as they can be. And they're really clear about if they're using AI and how they're, and how they're using it. Otherwise, it's going to be, they're going to rather lose sure. their USP. I mean, I to come back to something you mentioned at the start and, and my my current day job, I, I mean, I've always thought, which is why I started Axe8, that dependence on advertising is something that's is going to get harder and harder over time. And we've seen that to be true. It's just harder for the media as individual businesses or as a sector to maintain and defend market share of advertising because there's so many other places where advertising money can go. That's a fact. If more of the media returns to its other revenue stream, which is consumers, two good things happen. One is there's no particular limit to that. More people buying more stuff generate more money. Uh, But secondly, really importantly, if your principal economic stakeholder is your reader and that reader is paying you, then you betray their trust at your peril. You don't have to do much. They can easily go elsewhere. They don't have to come back and keep buying your product. So if this uh, shift to AI is accompanied by a shift towards the consumer becoming the key economic stakeholder and more stuff getting paid for by more people, then it does change the incentives quite a lot. And obviously, Axate's there to try to make sure that the that paying for content is something that, that extends to the population in general, not just a small percentage of it willing to subscribe. Where where do you um, think it's going to go? What do you think the likely or possible outcomes are in a few years' time? Do you think there's a chance that this sort of wild west or slightly wild era of uh, generative AI is going to get tamed by regulation and it's going to be used in much more a much more controlled fashion in the future? Do you reckon we're going to have a bit like the internet itself? We're going to have a really kind of wild few years before it kind of settles down into something that's a bit more, hopefully, um, a bit more manageable and safer. I mean, it's uh, unwise to make predictions about generative AI because, as you pointed out six months ago, we're barely aware of it and it's moving quicker than anything. The number of people who registered for ChatGPT got past 100 million. I can't remember the numbers, but way quicker than even even very rapidly adopted social networks and other things. It's really moving fast. So difficult to make predictions, but it's noticeable that caution has been much more of a sort of central part of the debate about this than it has been for some previous generations of things. We've seen a lot of sort of giddy hype around the internet itself, around search, more recently around NFTs, blockchains, and the metaverse, all of which has been a kind of... Um, what are they? <laughs> what are they, exactly. <laughs> I've forgotten about them already. Um, it's all felt a bit hyperbolic, and it's, and, and it's never quite lived up to, to the hype. What's happening with this, which is genuinely a momentous change, I think, in technology, is there already appears to be a much more sensible balanced debate happening in lots of places about the good and the bad. One prediction that I would... I instantly hesitate when I say I'm going to make a prediction. But one thing I think is very likely is because this is technology that can be adopted by anybody and it is not owned by one player, which wouldn't be a good thing anyway, I think it's inevitable that it will get adopted by the famed bad actors of the internet who will put it to work in pursuit of whatever nefarious outcome they, they 
they want, whether that's you know criminal, whether it's just trying to generate traffic to generate ads, whether it's dis and misinformation campaigns being run by state actors to try to influence democracy. You're talking about chat GPT here? It's no, like, not uh, specifically. I'm talking about generative AI technology broadly. We shouldn't, we shouldn't demonize one company who's developed some of the leading generative AI technologies. But don't you need to have a massive computer to be able to run it? Or Well, you, I don't think you do actually need a massive computer to do some quite effective things with it. But in any event, massive computers, if you're talking about state actors and criminals, uh, are, are not really a, yeah, that's a, true. a difficult thing. So I think we have to accept that it will never be completely contained by regulations. Whatever regulations we might write here in Europe and America will be ignored by people who want to ignore them. And it'll be very, very difficult when it comes to the output to know the difference. And I think that's the scary thing about it. It looks very credible and plausible. And whether it was generated by a Chinese state body or a responsible journalist is, is difficult to tell, which is why I think the responsible industry finding a way of attaching some sort of label to what they do and holding themselves out as accountable is quite important because the pollution won't go away. Can we create the dry land above the swamp where, where you can have a higher level of trust? And, and is it in our interest to try and do that? Us as an industry and society more broadly, I, I, think, it, I think there's some practical things we can try to do now that will make a positive difference. And hopefully, um, uh, yeah, the value of news brands, trusted brands, people that have got principles behind them, fact checkers, armies of journalists, you know, hopefully that will continue to mean something and hopefully mean something even more in the years to come. I mean, they certainly survived that first iteration of um, internet upheaval far better than I think anyone predicted. If you look at all the brands that have survived, you know, we've, we've hardly lost any, have we, I think, since the uh, 2000s, not in terms of legacy brands. Well, it depends where you're looking. If you're looking in, in local media, local newspapers, we've, we've lost loads and, yeah, and, and have done around, around the world. Um, legacy brands have certainly stood up, but I think survival is is not our goal. I think we should be really believing that we can return to thriving. News is an essential thing for, for pretty much every human. And if we can take advantage of this upheaval and emerge from it with, with better, more trusted brands and a better business model and one that does not hold us dependent on large platforms and third parties and an advertising market which we can no longer control, then I think the news industry and the media industry more broadly can actually return to thriving, growing, diversifying, and being much more consumer-focused as opposed to advertiser-focused. I suppose one of the challenges of the news industry, news publishing, is it's in terms of the leadership and management side, it's often quite short-sighted, isn't it? Because people, I guess people are looking at the first half, then they're looking at the second half, and um, they're looking, looking about the bottom line and hopefully not having to make anyone redundant sort of next week sort of thing. But, you know, and then at the same time, um, publishers at the moment, most big publishers, probably not if all of them have got like a working group somewhere on generative AI who's meeting up every week or once a month to try and discuss how they're going to um, use this technology to hopefully improve the bottom line over the next six months or year or so. I'm just wondering if you're on one of those working groups, what would be your, your advice to the, to the CEO of a publisher who's, who's looking at this stuff? We've kind of covered the the things they, they need to be thinking about in terms of ways they can use generative AI. I don't think we should be scared of that, really. I think there's been plenty of prior examples in the news industry where dramatic improvements in efficiency have produced much better outcomes in terms of the product. So I don't think we should be scared of it as a technology. There are worrying aspects of what it might do to our environment, which I think are things, it's a sort of the judo move that the news industry might be able to use against 
an internet that whose incentives have gone strongly against consumers really now, and that seems to be getting worse. Can we can we reestablish our strong and trusted relationship with consumers, put them at the heart of our business models? And if we're good enough at producing products they really like and want, thrive and grow as a result of that. To finish off, going back to the um early two thousands when, you know, a lot of the problems we've we're currently in were probably started, is it? What what are the lessons? Yeah, what what should we do differently this time, or what would you have done differently, or what should we have done differently back then when we were coming up with the current sort of um, ecosystem? We meaning new, the legislators. New, I mean, I the, suppose the news. I guess the news industry and our place of in it. And I mean, to, to, just to come back to your previous point, the news industry, I suppose, is quite short sighted and it's quite tactical, and that's partly because the whole business is focused on tomorrow and day after tomorrow is a long way off and next month seems 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 far in the distance. But what it means is it is actually really good at certain kinds of change. It's quite difficult to steer the oil tanker in a different direction. But what we've proven over and over again in the digital sphere is that when we see something interesting on the horizon, we're pretty good at putting a bunch of guys in a speedboat and saying, go over there and investigate that. And that's led to lots of change, you know, blogs, podcasts, video, amp pages, user-generated content off-platform publishing. There's lots of things we've done actually quite fast and that we, we're quite good at copying each other. And so the way to make change happen in the news industry is not to make a huge, big systemic change that requires everyone to change direction. It's to find small initiatives that if they work, you can double down on and do more of. And then we're super, super good at change, actually, and we're really, really quick when we've got the bit between our teeth. So we shouldn't feel discouraged by the momentum our, our oil tanker has. Going back to the early 2000s, I think, firstly, I think, well, I think the legislators made a mistake. And I think we were trying to point that out at the time. And the the kind of the appeal of this great goal of unlocking the great treasures of the internet kind of made it harder for us to be listened to. And the platforms were listened to much more assiduously by legislators. So the first thing I would say to them is listen to everyone and don't be too credulous about promises being made for this imaginary future. I don't think they are, by, by the way. I think they're being much more sceptical and asking more questions now. And I would question whether they need to act now. If, if they judge action to be urgent, really understand why that is and think through how that might change the incentives. In the case of releasing the platforms from liability, this is my homegrown analysis of this, but because there was no requirement, if, if what the law said was, well, someone uploaded something to a web page that was infringing, it's not the platform's fault. What it didn't say was the platform has to be able to tell us who that person was. That whoever his fault it was, who should be liable in law, we need to at least be able to hold them up. But that didn't really happen. And what it made went was a huge black hole into which liability fell and it became really, really hard to, to take action to the point where most copyright infringing on the internet is done with impunity, completely ignored, and there's nothing you can do about it. So I think if you're going to give one side of the debate special status, you have to make sure, well, firstly, think carefully about that, but secondly, make sure that's balanced. Otherwise, you're just handing a sort of special status and 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 if you're getting rid of rules, then you're going to create anarchy. And I think that's kind of, kind of what we've seen. And that's why we see this high level of pollution and distrust online. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens next. I guess my concern is that when it comes to Google, it's so big, how interested are governments really in, stand, in standing up to Google when it's such an important part of the UK economy now? They've got Bing, which is a sort of rubbish search engine using uh, ChatGPT to become better. And Google were sort of thinking, well, crikey, we've got to compete with them. And uh, how interested is uh, 
the government in telling Google what to do with all its billions and all the thousands and thousands of people it employs in the UK and and the threats it could make to sort of say, oh, well, okay, maybe we'll switch off bits of our very important <laughs> search engine in the UK if you don't like us so much. See, so you get on without us. Well, maybe. I mean, it's not just the British government doing this. I think the Europeans, the the Americans, there was an interesting Senate hearing the other day about uh, about AI, which Sam Altman showed up at and was saying, please do regulate, um, asking for regulation. So I don't think the UK government's going to be a lone voice playing its own course and hopefully hopefully, changes that, that, that do get made will, will be deeply embedded. But how about this? Is it possible for the news media or the media in general to become less dependent on the likes of Google? At the moment, Google seems essential to everyone's fortunes. That's how you get traffic. It's how people discover your site. It's a lot of the advertising money that flows into your business flows through platforms like, like Google and Facebook. If we can start to reduce our dependence on that, then perhaps we won't be quite so fearful of, of, of what might happen. And let's not forget, the news industry together have a relationship really with everybody. So in terms of the network of people we talk to collectively, it's really everybody. We don't act collectively. We're really, really bad at coordinating. And we tend to act as if we're competing with each other to prevent users moving about. We didn't used to do that in shops. We're very happy for our newspaper to be next to our competitor's newspaper in a shop. And that meant everyone who walked past the newspaper in a shop had the opportunity to buy it. We can get similar dynamics online. Perhaps we and they can become a little bit less dependent on those big social platforms, which they're not enjoying so much anyway, at least an awful lot of people aren't. Uh, and we can start to create networks of our own. That might be the way to take the giant influence of those big platforms out from the center of our universe and ecosystem a little bit. Brilliant. Thanks, Tom. You've been listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford, expertly engineered by Misha Frankel Duval. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends, leave us a, a nice review, and you can read a lot more about generative AI and the news industry on pressgazette.co.uk, our website. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>